Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. In an era where political divisions cut deep into the fabric of American society, sparing neither institutions nor any level of government, public schools are caught in the crossfire. With 90% of American children attending these schools, the stakes are monumental. Public schools stand as the backbone of our future, essential in shaping our social, cultural, and economic landscape. Yet they're embroiled in a conflict that threatens to dismantle their very foundation. The polarization of public education in America is not a novel phenomenon, but today it's intensified, transforming into a battleground emblematic of our divided country. Joining me today is Laura Papano, an award-winning journalist and author whose latest book, School Moms, illuminates the seismic shifts occurring within the once-upon-a-time nonpartisan sphere of public school boards. With over three decades of experience in covering K-12 and higher education, Papano has done an investigative study into the far right's deliberate campaign to reshape public education. Groups like Moms for Liberty and various factions of the Christian right have embarked on a mission to seize control of public education, building upon vulnerabilities laid bare by local school failures, the pandemic, and the contentious demands of powerful teachers' unions. Papano also highlights a dramatic shift in parental involvement, from supportive roles to organizing in defense of the very existence of public education. Today's national far-right networks wield their influence to ban books, restrict teaching on race and gender, marginalize LGBTQ kids, and overturn school boards. The future of that effort is still uncertain. It is my pleasure to welcome Laura Papano here to talk about school moms, parent activism, partisan politics, and the battle for public education. Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. I think you just laid it all out right there. (laughs) Thank you. It is a delight to have you here. First of all, the idea of parents messing with school boards or trying to get points of view on school boards is inherently nothing new, but it has certainly gone up to a whole nother level today. It has become part of the polarization in our society, and we're seeing school boards almost as ground zero in some of this polarization. Talk a little bit about what was the inflection point for this? When did it get to the stage that it's at today? Well, you're exactly right. School boards are nothing new. And in fact, a curious kind of historical fact is that before women earned the right to vote, they could often be elected to or vote in school board elections way back when, you know, before the turn of the century, the last century rather, um, because there's long been this kind of connection between women, child caring, and kind of expertise around schools. But the most recent issue that we're seeing with school boards around the country, and I have to tell you, after I've covered education for 30 plus years, I have watched way more school board meetings in the last 18 months, two years than I did in the previous decades. Because school boards were these kind of quiet places where really boring stuff got done. And suddenly things ignited. And they ignited really um, because of COVID. And a lot of the, the residue of the battles that we're seeing now started around mask mandates and rules about who could, you know, where schools, especially towards the end of COVID, 
were schools going to be open or remote? All of those sorts of decisions were the place where parents would show up often emotional and angry, and they found each other. So how did something like Moms for Liberty grow out of COVID and the pandemic? I went to the first Moms for Liberty Summit in June 2022, and I registered. And I remember walking out to the opening reception with a band playing and running into um, moms from Brevard County, Florida, which is where Moms for Liberty started, and just chatting, saying, hey, what got you involved? And over and over, I heard, well, I'm mad that my daughter is a junior in high school and she's missing her junior year because of COVID. And the kind of frustration that parents everywhere felt and the emotion that they felt energized people around stuff that was personal. And when you get personal with parents and schools, you get a lot of energy. So that's really where the inflection around school boards happened. And what's interesting is that school boards suddenly became places where power was being wielded. And at the national level, this had been understood for a while, but not deeply understood. When I went to that first Mom for, Moms for Liberty Summit, there were very few um, presenters, I mean, out in the in the lobby area. I don't mean presenter, I mean like, you know, the people at the tables giving away the literature. And when I went to the one last July in Philadelphia, there were so, so many. And the sponsors had gone from the Leadership Institute, which is, you know, circa 1979 started to train conservatives, um, to a whole, you know, group of high-powered organizations, including Patriot Mobile. And uh, Patriot Mobile is a very interesting case relative to school boards because Patriot Mobile, for those who may not know, is a Texas-based Christian cell phone company. And they take 5% of their profits and they donate them to far-right causes. In January 2022, they formed a, a super PAC called Patriot Mobile Action. And in a way, this was a national demonstration project of exactly what you're talking about with school boards. They identified 11 candidates for school board in North Texas that represented four different districts and whose success would flip those districts to far right. And they poured over $400,000 into these school board races. Now, People have been running for school board for years and years and years on a couple hundred dollars, a Xerox machine, some friends, and and you know some local attention. Maybe you know a thousand dollars if it was a you know a big a, a more of a municipal race. But what you saw suddenly was you saw local school board candidates having glossy mailers and flyers and box trucks with their names circling, you know, the streets of your downtown. And when I looked into the source of, uh, of funding and spending for all of these candidates in North Texas, I very quickly identified that a number of them were 
having help. Uh, they were purchasing help through, you know, the local PACs because the super PAC cannot donate directly to the candidate, but then local PACs formed that could use this money to purchase strategy and marketing materials from Axiom Strategies in Kansas City, Missouri, and come to, you know, discover that's the same outfit that is doing Ted Cruz's campaign work, that was doing Ron DeSantis's campaign work, that was doing Glenn Youngkin's campaign work. And suddenly you get this kind of absurd, you know, realization that there are national minds, national political strategic minds working on local school board races. And in cases where, you know, races are decided by a, a handful of votes, some of the races I looked at had voter turnouts of 10%. So a lot of this comes down to name recognition because voters have not been particularly well-informed and they haven't needed to be well-informed about who was on their school board. Part of what we're seeing also is, and, and it's the reason you see uh, arguably so many of these political consultants on the right involved in these school board races is it's become a training ground for political players. It used to be that, that in fact, school board races, even if they were partisan, reflected some of the things that were going on at the upper echelons of politics in the community. Now it's kind of ground zero. They're becoming the basis for what else goes on in the politics of a community. Well, Jeff, you just made a couple really powerful points. One is the nationalization of local community races and politics. And I guess one example is I did some reporting uh, for a story that ran in Heckinger Report and Vanity Fair in December in North Idaho. And I was on the ground on election day and the moms who were battling the take the far right takeover of their school district were Republican, conservative, religious moms, but who made it clear that they were not extremists. And yet I'm on the ground in on a dirt road in you know West Bonner County, Idaho, and I'm standing talking with some of the campaign workers for the far right candidates, and they're telling people and me that their candidate is going to stop boys from entering girls' bathrooms, and that quote-unquote transgenderism is the big issue or a big issue. The issue in the district is that they haven't had a, a K through six language arts curriculum for two years. Their budget is in shambles. They are, have trouble keeping the schools clean. There are mice running over children's feet. So there are very real local issues that were being subsumed by the national kind of lexicon, the national argument. So you're exactly right that we're having this kind of situation where there's a sense that this is a political tool and training ground. And what was interesting is that when I was at that first Moms for Liberty conference that I mentioned, one of the kind of longtime dull, you know, conservative education organizations was all, you know, they were all pumped up because they had just started a school board training program online. Well, soon after that, the Leadership Institute, which is a you know 1979 Morton Blackwell uh, group, started a, an online 
school board training group. So a, a sector that they had never paid attention to suddenly was on the radar as a really valuable kind, kind of experience and training ground for people. And what I realized when I was there was that there it has a twofold uh, piece to it. One is that, yes, you can train people. And as Steve Bannon said at the at the CPAC in 2022, he said, school boards are the key that picks the lock. And what he went on to describe was that we are going to take back the country by winning school boards town by town, district by district. But one of the interesting kind of other side effects of this that I noticed when I was at the Moms for Liberty conference is I had noticed that um, Ted Cruz was endorsing and tweeting about one of the 11 candidates in Texas who had to go to a runoff election. I thought that, hmm, that's very interesting that someone of Ted Cruz's stature would be taking to Twitter to endorse a local school board candidate. But I had yet another surprise at the Moms for Liberty conference, uh, summit rather, when Ron DeSantis stood up and said, for the first time ever, I am endorsing 30 school board candidates. And the moms who were running for those positions were repeatedly throughout the four-day summit asked to stand and be recognized. So there was a real cachet and a real recognition that this was a new frontier. And some of the language around that new frontier was that moms, you may not be comfortable, you may not be used to this, but you, we need you, you need to do this. And what I realized was that even as the moms were enormously flattered that Ron DeSantis was endorsing them. It was so clear that what he was doing was ensuring his own ground game support, right? So if you get involved in politics at your local level, you're gonna get people involved at other levels all around the same ideology. Is there any correlation that we have seen anywhere between school board conflicts and school boards being taken over by these various right-wing groups and academic outcomes in these schools? Well, I think <laughs> that's such a great question. And I think it may be too early to know that. And I think one of the problems is that this isn't about academics. It pretends to discuss academics. I mean, you'll hear people saying, we should not have social emotional learning. We should instead be doing math. They're not mutually exclusive. It's not, it's not a you know, zero sum game. But it, one thing that is clear is that it is very disruptive to schools. And you see this over and over. When I was on the ground in Pennsylvania, when I've been talking with kids in Texas. It is so um, it is so disruptive to them as they're trying to go about their days, like anti-LBGTQ policies where suddenly there are fights day in and day out in the school board, in the community about what teachers can hang on their walls, what they can say. And students, I was I met with a group of students over pizza in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, and the anti-LBGTQ rhetoric was so 
oppressive and constant that they said, we can't walk down the hallways between classes without everyone yelling slurs at us and harassing us. It's very, very hard to focus on your schoolwork and learning and academics when you've got that kind of disruption and fire going on, especially if you're an adolescent and there's already a lot to worry about. So I don't, I have not seen any actual research on this. I will be so interested if someone is doing this. I, it's also, there's, there are a lot of variables though too, because these are in different kinds of communities that it's, it's, it's going to be, that, that would be a difficult study to do, but I cannot imagine that it is not disruptive to academics. Talk a little bit about the teachers who are caught in the crossfire of all of this. Well, there you go. I mean, I think one of the difficulties here is that um, teachers are incredibly nervous about what they can say out loud in class. And a lot of the restrictive policies at the school board level and even at um, and more profoundly, the legislative policies that we're seeing around the country around, quote unquote, divisive concepts. I mean, they're, they are so poorly kind of elucidated that teachers, there was a teacher in New Hampshire who requested kind of counsel's opinion on, you know, what, what does this mean? And people have not been able to nail it down because the language is so vague as to, as to make people completely fear saying anything at all. So you've got teachers who are just very, very nervous. And this particular teacher said, you know, I'm nervous about losing my job. We're all nervous about losing our jobs. And I did interview in the book a teacher who did lose his job for talking about white privilege in a 11th grade contemporary issues class. And it's, you know, I spent time with him in uh, Eastern Tennessee, and I spent time going through all of the documentation related to his case. And it is very clear that these rules are really difficult for teachers to follow. So what you have as a result is you have a kind of self-censorship that's going on. And I'm down in Florida right now doing some reporting for another story, but I keep hearing over and over from people that there's nervousness about what one can say. And so as a result, people are not saying very much. And this is a really, really troubling development. Also, teachers may not wanna teach in an environment where they're not feeling that they are supported or that the principal or the superintendent or the in an other administration or the school board has their back. And you see this, I mean, in Pennsylvania, I met with a teacher who met me right after school at a at a you know sports restaurant bar near the railroad station. And he walked in and said, I almost got fired today. And he was a 30-year veteran teacher. And in the beautiful way that teachers are, he would not like get into it, get into the details until he told me his philosophy of teaching, which was. I don't believe in grades, people are just focusing on that, but I really, the only indoctrination I'm doing is I want them to be critical thinkers. And I think we are forgetting that. We're creating this really terrible schism between parents 
and teachers because teachers are feeling that they're no longer trusted. And we, we need to, same with librarians, we must trust the professionals to do and have, have relationships with students in schools. That's what their job is. Is it your sense that this has reached critical mass at this point, that, that these wars, these culture wars inside school districts and over school boards have peaked and that we may be headed in the other direction? Or is it continuing to get worse in your view? Well, I think it, there's kind of a rolling awareness that's going on. Um, when I went to North Idaho in late June, this was all news to them. And they had not been really aware of all of the issues happening all around the country. And I'm finding that in different places. People think that, yes, you know, in Texas and Florida that we've heard a lot about. But what we're seeing is that there is a there are these things are popping up. I was in, you know, uh, Washington, Seattle last week and sat with a school librarian who was seeing more and more of these issues kind of being raised and, and in places where people don't expect it. So I think that's what is really important is that, that, that there is a certain amount of vigilance that we all have to have around this. I, I, on the other hand, I think in terms of the turning of the tide, I know that in the last election in November, when the Moms for Liberty endorsed candidates did not do as well as many had kind of hoped or expected on their side that there was a sense like, okay, they're done, they're, their influence is waning. I think what's happening is that people are waking up. People are waking up and recognizing, wait a second, we need to know who is running for school board, what they stand for, what their what policies they would embrace and endorse. So I think there's that we're seeing a a pushback, which is what I really try to write about in uh, school moms is look at some of these parent groups, um, mom groups that are working to inform. I mean, in Pennsylvania, Kate Nazemi and her uh, co-founder, a, a retired English teacher, started advocates for inclusive education. And I get their newsletter and oh my gosh, the amount of work that goes into informing people around policies and backgrounds and the implications of legislation that's you know being discussed at the state level i mean that is just a level of awareness and detail that we just have had not seen before and it's i mean kudos to all of the people who are waking up and realizing yes school board does matter one of the things that's become an adjunct of all of this is a dramatic increase in homeschooling and an increase in the number of private schools. Talk about that. Well, I mean, homeschooling, I wrote a, when I was writing a column for the Boston Globe way back when, <laughs> in the early 2000s, um, homeschooling has always been a very, there's always been a sector of people who have homeschooled. Homeschooling has increased around religious uh, groups that want kind of quote unquote freedom from curriculum. And they want to kind of be in charge of their own child's 
uh, every moment. I mean, I would, I am a reasonably educated person. I would never homeschool. Um, but you know, you know, there's the people, people do, and, and there are different ways of homeschooling at the time that I was, um, writing about it. And even now there are groups for people who, you know, uh, will have, I went to a homeschool ultimate Frisbee gym class one day. Um, so there, there, there is a well-organized network, but what you're seeing, I think is, uh, the homeschooling is rising in some places, especially like in places like Florida in response to the vouchers and education savings accounts. And what the, the difference between kind of the old style, um, charter school as an option or choices, instead of just being mere choices, it's cash. So vouchers are $8,000, depends where you are and, and what your child's uh, situation is. Let's say, you know, 8,000 is a very typical figure. You'll get $8,000 in Florida as of last, you know, a little over a year ago, you can you get that on a debit card and you can quote unquote homeschool and that can take any form you think it should because in certain states there's no requirement to submit a kind of a curriculum or a or a description of the studies it's just on you and it's different in every state of course but the result i worry i mean we, we've seen stories of people spending their money on trampolines and trips to Disney and, you know, backyard play equipment. So what I worry about is that we're going to have a generation of just not educated children because they're, they don't, in Florida, they don't have to take tests to show that they have learned the things that kids are supposed to learn. So it's a, it's it's a very difficult situation in that, um, and it's being billed as education freedom, and yet you'd see in places like Arizona where you know the you get eight thousand dollars, but the if you're sending your kid to private school, the average private school tuition in Arizona was twelve thousand two hundred twelve thousand five hundred dollars. When I last looked at it, and I have heard that many places are raising tuitions because of the vouchers. And one of the things that happens as a result of this, as more kids are homeschooled and more kids go into private schools, is they're taking students out of the public school system, which has an economic impact. They're not only taking kids out, and 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 we still have the vast, 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 vast majority of students are attending pub public schools. But what they're doing is they're taking a lot of money out of the schools. Um, and the result is that you have school systems that are absolutely struggling to have buses, have, have teachers, have materials. It is a, it is a really, really troubling situation because the students who are not moving to in voucher schools or private schools, and many private schools do not take vouchers, but 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 you know some some you know open up in a storefront and take vouchers. 
and the 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 kind of rules around them in different states in some states is very very thin and the oversight very very thin they're not necessarily required they're not in florida only for before the most recent expansion only four percent and i looked at all, all the data only four percent of voucher schools were nonprofit, accredited and non-religious so the students who are are going to these schools in some cases the schools aren't very good but in other cases you have the students who are left behind really struggling to be educated in a system that is really you know really in in you know struggling with the fact that these vouchers are taking so much money out of the schools the public schools we certainly see the activism of those on the right in trying to take over these school boards, as we've been talking about, groups like Moms for Liberty and other religious organizations. What are we seeing and to what degree are we seeing activism among those parents that, that don't want to see this happen, that are fighting back? Have they given up? Are they becoming more active? Talk about that side of the fight. Well, I think there's a really powerful recognition that this matters. And you see organizations like Red Wine and Blue, which was started in 2018 by Katie Paris, who was a Washington, DC. Um, she had, had a lot of involvement, political operative in DC, moved to Ohio. And she told me, she said, I thought it was going to be a nice purple state. And after the 2018 um, midterms, when she saw what had happened, she in in where there was a lot of change all around the country, but not so much in Ohio and not so much in her local in the state uh, legislature. She realized that they she needed to be involved, and she started uh, meeting with people who women around the state who had barely won or barely lost. And out of those conversations grew an organization that is very uh, fun, sassy, but it's really meant to, and it's called red wine and blue. The wine is optional, of course, uh, but the but it signals a kind of social connection. And moms have long had a social connection to one another. And the, the point is to le start leveraging networks. Instead of having DC operatives kind of looking at moms as a demographic group to be organized and coordinated, Moms, red wine and blue, and moms around the country are 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 organizing themselves. You know, we've often heard of quote unquote soccer moms, security moms, new security moms. Well, we, we I mean, I guess we could call them school moms, but um, but they are organizing around the things that matter to them, and a lot, and what matters to them are their children and their schools and their communities, and the consequences of taking our public schools, which were for so long, nonpartisan spaces. I never knew what my friends' politics were in school. I didn't know what the politics were of the parents on the sidelines that were cheering on the kids or, or, or volunteering, you know, for the teacher appreciation breakfast or to sell wrapping paper or toilet paper, not toilet paper, wrapping paper or bring in tissues to the school. And we, it didn't matter. 
the politics just didn't matter. But the far right has been using public schools and school boards as a platform, a political platform. And this has really forced moms who don't want that in their community to push back and to organize. And, and, and that's, I think, what we're seeing around the country is we're seeing moms who are deciding that rather than wait for someone to tell them, you know, to, to offer instructions, that they are organizing themselves and they are absolutely pushing back. And finally, as we see more polarization among parents and the parents dividing up into the red and blue team in, in these fights, how is that impacting the kids directly? And are we seeing this degree of political polarization starting at a younger and younger age with respect to the kids? Yeah, I mean, what you point out is one of the real tragedies of this. So the 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 upside is that we're seeing much more activism and people are no longer kind of waiting for other people to step up and, and organize or run for school board. They're paying attention in that way. But it does have an impact on communities and the division. So I was in Texas and meeting with some moms who exactly stepped up and created an, orga an organization. And I was sitting there um, with, with one of the moms and she said, she said, you know, the real frustrating thing for me is that um, I'm not, is that it's affecting our community. She said, I do the food for the water polo meets. She said, but I can't get on the theater booster board because conservatives run that. And I can't be on the choir board because conservatives run that. And this is a woman who is a serious Christian. And she is struck by the how this is tearing apart communities and making people not talk to each other. Some of the moms that I spoke with said, I, I am not, I, I'm not really friendly with people that are not doing the work, even if they agree, even if they're if they're not showing up to help us. You know, I find that those networks are not are, are are fraying and as someone who's written a lot about community and cares a lot about community and connection you know that's one of the distressing things for me is that this the kind of insertion of national political rhetoric into our local communities is really fracturing and fraying the connections that make it so wonderful to live in communities and be part of a public school community Laura Papano, her book is School Moms, Parent Activism, Partisan Politics, and the Battle for Public Education. Laura, I thank you so much for spending time with us. And thank you so much.